0: Thanks for tuning in to the Medevac podcast powered by the Robert Irvine Foundation, whose mission is to support and strengthen the physical and mental well-being of our nation's heroes and their families. They provide them with life-changing opportunities, resources, and support through food, wellness community, and financial support programs. I'm one of your hosts, David Reed.
1: And I'm your other host, Christian Myers. Thank you for joining us on the Medivac podcast. If you're new here, uh, we are hopping into a part two with and Gill, also known as Smurf. He's a former uh, naval F-18 pilot who's undergone some pretty interesting things. So if you missed his first episode, go back and check that out. Kind of dive into what it's like going through the natal fi- uh, naval fighter program. That's a mouthful. Uh, and kind of his uh, iterations of training. And now we're hopping into part two with some pretty interesting stories of what it's like to, uh, I don't know, Enter a couple scary moments in a yes, fighter uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's going, it's going to get more
2: exciting. Yeah, on for sure. Yes. So well, uh,
0: welcome back, Smurf. Yeah,
2: thanks. Good to be here. Good to be in Let- sunny San Antonio. Getting San Antonio some warm, warm weather. Michigan's Ish. awful right now, so yeah, well, I can only imagine. And <laughs> yeah.
0: and uh, and you're here out here because you're going through some hyperbaric chambers uh, stuff as well.
2: That's correct. Um, A generous, uh, a generous couple, uh, Clay and Eleanor Womack, run ATX Hyperbarics out of Austin. Hmm. Uh, My buddy Vance, uh, former operator type, put me in contact with them, and they invited me down for a month of free treatment at their clinic. So they're doing all sorts of stuff from blood testing. Doing stuff with peptides, supplementation, mm. HBOT, which is uh, hyperbaric oxygen therapy where I'm sitting in a tube for four hours a day uh, and getting that high oxygen flow, which mm. this is all to treat uh, traumatic brain injury, yeah. but it also helps treat nerve injury and physical injuries. So I've got a little bit of all, which I'll get into how that happens today. Ooh, exactly. But, uh, I'm finally getting some really good help uh, mm. and doing things that actually fix my body.
0: That's incredible. That's it. incredible. So let's let's dive into where we took off from last time. You went through a rigorous training environment, ever changing, ever evolving. And you left us on a little cliffhanger last
1: time they were talking shit that you didn't have a call sign yet so they wanted yeah. to make sure you had one you were poop
2: <laughs> so uh, yeah i was i was the new guy at VFA 143 the pukin dogs out of virginia beach mm-hmm. and as the new guy at the pukin dogs you get to be called poop because that is the most <laughs> worthless part of the dog, which is accurate when you're the new pilot as sure. you have no qualifications yet. And, uh, despite having already been through three years of pretty intense training and earning your wings and all of that, you don't know what you're doing. That's yeah. fair.
1: That fair.
2: <laughs> Probably accurate. Right. And, uh, so so this point I'd been in the squadron for about eight months. I'm finally starting to feel like I'm getting to know my way around a little bit, a Hmm. lot to learn, of course, but uh, at least I'm not the F and G anymore. There'd been maybe four, maybe even five newer guys underneath me at this point that had joined after. And many of them had already had call signs given to them, or (laughs) at least some really good potentials. And the other guys that had joined the same time I did, they already had call signs, but uh, there was a big whiteboard with all the potentials up there. And I still didn't have a call sign. Did you have any like suggestions for, for you? Um, or? I think they had Ninja up there because we were all outside exercising and I was able to move very ninja like and run and jump over a fence like I was a ninja so they were very <laughs> impressed with my call sign. but it wasn't embarrassing in any yeah. way and so sort of complimentary instead so that one obviously didn't yeah. work you're not, not allowed and to have a was, cool call sign it was, yeah, it was two air force call sign <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. Uh, just, yeah. <laughs> uh, hey you're not wrong <laughs> <laughs> you're not wrong uh, but yeah if i was in the air force i'd be ninja <laughs> what do you want to be i want to
0: be ninja I want to be ninja <laughs> i want to be maverick <laughs> too ninja. that's pretty cool uh
2: but yeah, anyways, there were not any very good ones. And, uh, and anyways, the, the senior J O in the squadron Basil, who also, if you want to hear another really good, uh, how PG, uh, should I keep this? Can well, I get it? Not
0: at all. Okay. Uh,
2: Go for it. <laughs> I guess this isn't that bad except for basil, uh, So I love sharing this story without his permission because I know he's just wrenching. (laughs) He hears this, uh, but Basil got Basil because he allegedly had sexual relationships with a sister-in-law. So Basil's an acronym for bangs, a (laughs) sister-in-law. Which I don't know if that has any truth to it, but it stuck me because he hates it. Uh, Uh, Yeah,
0: I would hate that too. But he came up just before
2: uh, my flight on this day, January 15, 2014, and said, you know, you've been in the squadron, (laughs) but you haven't done anything dumb enough to earn a call sign. Yeah. And if you didn't hear the last episode, uh, Fisty, my buddy running the SDO desk, also uh, noted that there was a f- 16 foot, 3,500 pound great white shark named Mary Lee. Nice this GPS dinosaur. tagged shark was directly underneath the working area I was going to go fly, in. and he even said that day It'd be a bad day to eject. There's this massive shark underneath your area, <laughs> dooming you. So I was just <laughs> dooming just you. Just yeah. I have not even walked and got my gear on yet. But uh, do the brief. Our mission that day was to actually go out and check an aerial refueling pod that had just come out of maintenance and make sure it was working properly. Hmm. So uh another JO hipster, uh super cool dude, was gonna go out and fly the tanker jet. And then my commanding officer and myself were gonna fly in our individual jets and join up on him and take some plugs with our refueling probes to see if this thing worked. Mm-hmm. So we get ready that day. The water temperature out in the area uh, at the buoy nearby was 37 degrees Fahrenheit with below freezing water temperature. So a very cold Atlantic Ocean out there that day. Are you wearing your Mustang, the Mustang suits
1: or what do you guys have? Like dry suits? So we have dry suits that we wear.
2: Yeah. So you put on uh, you know, your normal gear. You can wear long underwear under them, but I don't think many people do because it gets real sweaty. Oh, it's disgusting. Although, yeah. it wouldn't have been a bad idea this day had I known what was about to happen. But sure. uh, put on my dry suit. You put your G-suit harness and your survival vest over. And I grabbed, uh, I just got my qualifications with my Jehemix helmet, which is this big sort of space age, ballsy, bulgy visor. Oh yeah. And wherever you look in the cockpit, it uses magnets to track your head position and it displays a lot of your weapon systems and radar symbology so that you can do some really cool things. Everything from potentially acquire a target over your shoulder Mm -hmm. and engage in an air-to-air target that way to, if you're in a cast scenario, you can look down at the ground and do visual acquisitions you can kind of see through
1: the, the, the aircraft, right? You um, kind see through the cockpit. The F eighteen
2: doesn't have where you can see through the aircraft. The F thirty five does now have that where okay. you could literally look down and it uses cameras to project an yeah. image of what's on the ground. That so is
1: wild. really
2: yeah. rad tech in that thing. Yeah,
1: um, we tried out some similar equipment in the helicopter and it was it was more discombobulating for me in the back, like we can stick our entire bodies out of the helicopter if we need to but using that tech it was a little little weird like being able to see through it oh um, yeah it was just and it, you're probably used to well i mean we only we used and... it in a simulator setting so okay. it was it was just more distracting than anything but yeah it's it's mm-hmm. wild stuff that they they have they're implementing it's now. really cool
2: even the jehemix which is probably like 1980s technology is pretty sweet yeah um, but uh, just like any piece of new gear when you're getting used to it, especially something as complex as this helmet, mm. it takes a little bit of practice with it before you really get comfortable and it becomes part of your habit patterns mm. and do- it doesn't distract you at least a little bit yeah. uh, at some level. So I was still in that phase where I was getting used to this helmet and implementing it. I was out, I was about to go out and do uh, – s- after we got the fuel, we were going to do some high aspect BFM, which is like gloves off, anything can happen, mm. dogfighting, which – It was one of my absolute favorite things to do in the F-18. So I was excited to do that. Um, We got ready for the day, got our dry suits on, took off, joined up with Hipster on his tanker jet. We did a few plugs to make sure this thing was working. Mm -hmm. Everything went smoothly there. Basically, you put out this little probe on the nose of the jet. You fly up to a basket and you plug it in and you sit there while it gives you fuel. Mm -hmm. Uh, Completed. The ARS refueling pod was working properly. Hipster... Uh, when his separate way and then my flight lead and I took our jets and we set up to do some high aspect BFM mm. and start getting the hang of this helmet for me. And so we go we set up we did maybe four or five rounds of fighting which is kind of like a round of martial arts you fight until somebody's a clear winner and then you knock it off and you set up and do it again and again and again and today it was sort of like stepping in the ring with freaking Mike Tyson you know this guy is a top gun graduate commanding officer he'd been doing this 15 plus years and was very capable and proficient mm. at it. And, but that's the way a lot of Navy training, military training goes, you know, you jump in over your head and you figure it out yeah. and You get beat up. That's you a get better. You get better for yeah. sure. Get beat uh, up by the really good guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you figure it out. Yeah. And anyways, we had done all those sets, uh, mainly me getting my ass kicked by my skipper <laughs> and we set up for the last, we hit our Joker fuel, which meant we had just enough fuel for one more round of fighting or at least a partial. Mm -hmm. And so we set up called speed and angels. We set up a little lower and a little faster than we normally did just to consolidate uh, the time we had and uh, called speed and angels, which meant I was in position. He was in position three, two, one fights on and uh, flight lead maneuvered the nose of his jet aggressively nose low. I matched that to come towards a merge where Mm -hmm. we cross paths and as we cross paths, I'm sort of distracted utilizing the HOTAS, so the the buttons and things on the stick and the throttle to mm-hmm. utilize my weapon systems in conjunction with this complex helmet. And while I'm looking out, trying to focus on that, I didn't quite fully realize the speed and the altitude I'd gotten to in that short bit of time since we called the fights on. When we called the fights on, we were up at 12,500 feet, which is over two nautical miles up in the sky. Yeah. So. The ground wasn't an immediate concern of mine at that point, but things happen very quickly, especially when you're a little bit distracted by a new piece of kit. And as we came to that merge, I was already 30 degrees nose low and partially inverted. So it made sense to me to continue to roll the rest of the way inverted and pull the jet in a split S maneuver down towards the ocean to bring it back up. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, uh, flight lead went nose high. And so I'm diving down and I'm, at this point pulling seven and a half G's with that stick all the way in my lap. And the jet very quickly accelerates into the transonic region, which is right before you break the speed of sound. Mm. In the transonic region, uh, the parasitic drag acting on the aircraft is exceptionally high. Back when guys were trying to break the sound barrier, a lot of the engineers and scientists were saying there's no way you can break the speed of sound because this sound barrier, as you get towards the speed of sound that exponentially goes up, Mm -hmm. you can't get through that wall of air. So that's where I'm at with the aircraft and airspeed. And because of that, the engineers and test pilots developed a system on the jet called the G-Bucket. And that was uh, done with wise intention, which is when the aircraft reaches that transonic region, if you're carrying bombs on the wings, it reduces the g force that's available on the jet hmm. to reduce an overstress, a potential overstress of the wings. Sure. Um, but unfortunately, this system activated uh, with no warning, and there were not bombs on my wings. However, the flight before me had put a code in the jet telling it that there were bombs that i was unaware of okay and so at basically the worst possible time pointed straight down at the ocean approaching the speed of sound my jet went from pulling that nice firm seven and a half g's where if say for rough math my head and helmet weigh approximately 20 pounds in nearly eight g's that's like having a 150 160 pound person on your head yeah. and you're using your neck muscles to look around and fighting that force, not to mention all the force that's going through your body. So you can really feel that force. Oh, yeah. And as I'm pointed straight down at the ocean with my neck craned out, keeping the other aircraft in sight, because you lose the sight, you lose the fight kind mm. of thing. Uh, and as I hit bullseye nose low, the jet just goes, nope. And it eased up the G that I could pull. It went from seven and a half G's down to about four and a half G's. Hmm. So that's the equivalent of going around a sharp corner in a high performance sports car and then having the steering wheel kick back halfway. Yeah. And instead of skidding off the road, I'm now stuck in a dive at the ocean. Driving you towards the wall, basically. I pulled the throttle to idle. I put out the speed brake in the few seconds I had to figure out what was going on. Again, just a reaction time. I didn't know what was happening yet uh, about all I just told you about the G bucket. And before I knew it, the ocean was just rushing up into my face. And Mm -hmm. the only option for me at that point was to get out of the jet or die with the jet. So at two seconds before impacting the ocean, I was at 51 degrees nose low. So a pretty steep dive. I was going 695 miles per hour, which is 95% the speed of sound at 2000 feet above the ocean. Mm Uh, I punched out. I pulled the ejection handle between my legs and braced for impact. And a normal ejection is pretty violent on your body. It will, you know, guys get flail injuries from their arms, failing, breaking shoulders, dislocating shoulders, breaking arms, uh, compressing your spine. Uh, Neck injuries are very common. And that's in a best case scenario, straight and level below 200 knots, controlled ejection. This was way outside the envelope for what was supposed to be survivable. Uh, fortunately, uh, I'm a fairly short person while I hated that growing up, going to the bars and being the shortest dude in the bar. Uh, I was also very into CrossFit and lifting. So I was pretty stocky, five foot seven, about 180 pounds. Mm. So I was strong, short, stocky. I was a wrestler. So I had a strong neck and that I think in part, at least saved my life was that preparation going into thinking that maybe something like this might happen someday. Sure. And as I ejected, even with all that, uh, I mean, it was like hitting an explosion with my body. Uh, If you've ever stuck your arm out a car window going 70 miles per hour down the highway, say you felt that parasitic drag acting on your body Mm -hmm. or, you know, you're a skydiver, you know what it's, I'm sure you jumped out of airplanes and Mm -hmm. and what it feels like as you jump out and you hit that airflow at, you know, 150 knots or whatever you guys normally jump out at. Um, Well, if you stuck your arm out of car window at 70, you felt about one, one hundredth the force that impacted my body. That parasitic drag force is exponentially stronger with airspeed. So at almost 700 miles per hour, it was like getting hit by an explosion. Um, yeah. And it, I mean, it ripped, it ripped my helmet off. It smashed my head, giving me a traumatic brain injury. I broke my C one. I broke my left scapula. I, both my arms were just flailing like rag dolls. Um, causing both my upper arms, the humerus, to to shatter. My right humerus tore through my brachial artery. uh, And then my left forearm shattered in multiple places, just destroying my radius and all in that forearm, severing my median nerve in my arm. Uh, Spinal injury causing uh, brachial plexus injury, which is the nerve that innervates much of your upper body, arms, and shoulders. And then both my legs were flailing around in that wind speed with steel toe boots on, They basically turned into maces, smashing my tib-fibs open. My lower leg bones uh, just smashed to pieces with open fractures. Chunks of my tibia are falling out, chumming the water for this great white shark (laughs) that I now know is down below me. Um, By the time the ejection sequence completed, it takes about 0.4 seconds for you to exit the aircraft. I was 1.5 seconds from impacting the water. And in that time, my parachute fortunately deployed slowing me enough that i didn't die on impact with the ocean somehow uh, i likely still sustained some injuries from that impact with the ocean as well at that speed sure um i had ejected so fast that my dry suit had shredded open a majority of the survival gear on my vest had ripped off uh my helmet had ripped off my head oh. and so now i just splash into the water that parachute that had just saved my life was pulled underneath the ocean current and then very quickly started to drown me alive. Um, luckily my LPU, the life preserver unit around my neck mm-hmm. inflated automatically and provided some buoyancy. Yeah. Uh, we have what's called a C words that attach to the parachute riser and connect us to the parachute. That is essentially a saltwater activated explosive device. Yeah. And what that's supposed to do, because upper body injuries are so common in high speed jet ejections that with broken arms or injured arms, you can't reach up and manually disconnect your parachute. So because of that, they put these sea wars on there. So when you go into salt water, it sets off a charge and disconnects your parachute for you. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of our gear is like Vietnam era stuff. Uh, and one of the sea fired, but didn't disconnect The other one didn't even fire at all. So that parachute was still connected to me. And while it had just saved my life, it very quickly sunk under the rough, open Atlantic ocean and started to drag me under over and over. And if you've ever been held under, um, by a big wave out surfing or when you need a breath of air, if you've ever been drown proof and you want to get a breath of air and you can't get it, you know, that feeling, Oh yeah. Um, not to mention, this is 37 degree Fahrenheit water, which, if you like to cold plunge, you know that feels like freaking needles on your skin. And when you put your head under that water, it's like a brain freeze. Oh, yeah. And so that ice water is filling up my tattered dry suit, making me even more of a sea anchor because that's all trapped in my equipment now. Mm-hmm. And the parachute's just pulling me under over and over again. And meanwhile, fortunately, my flight lead sees. My parachute open realizes something's wrong, quickly drops a mark on my location, marking my GPS location, at least where my parachute was. Mm-hmm. And then in what little fuel he has left, he's basically a bingo fuel. Yeah. So operating on just fumes and just enough to get back to Virginia Beach. He sees a fishing vessel maybe a mile away, and he switches up to maritime guard on the radio and tries to get a hold of them. They're not answering, so he gets really low, really fast, and thumps their bow, flying over the bow of their ship or the bow of their vessel very low and very fast. They realize something's up when a fricking super hornet <laughs> blasts over the bow oh my switch God. up to maritime guard, and he helps to direct them over to my position. No shit. Um, he has to bingo back. Yeah. In that time, he's able to coordinate his on scene commander roles with search and rescue, mm. with ATC, and get other aircraft and ATC all involved. Uh, so, you know, heroic efforts on his part and what little fuel he had to get all that done. Uh, meanwhile, I'm just getting teabagged thinking freaking mary lee is going to come up at any second and eat me up knowing i'm just like bleeding out into the water images of like jaws are in my head like oh yeah you know the blood drop of water and blood and all of that and uh (laughs) and you know i'm inhaling a lot of water because i'm being held under the point where i'm just naturally you start to and start to suck water in yeah uh sort of against you know it's just like an automatic response to carbon dioxide buildup. And I start breathing in water. I get a lot of salt water in my lungs. Eventually this fishing vessel gets over there. They throw a rope out to me, but I'm when my arms destroyed and all the paracord tangled around me, all it does is ends up getting more tangled and, yeah. and wrapping around my face, which eventually they said was actually a good thing. They didn't pull me into the fishing boat because just the trauma of getting me out into the boat could have killed me because they would have had to put me back in the water to do the helicopter rescue they were about yeah. to do um meanwhile a h60 seahawk helicopter from hs-11 had been called in from a aircraft carrier that was out in the area had my direction as well as an h60 seahawk helicopter from hsc-28 that was actually about to go out and do i believe a weapon exercise with some of the seal teams uh, mm. out in norfolk they both got called and head and way, there mm-hmm. was a coast guard vessel on my way, on the way out. And so there's all this stuff converging on my position. And in the chaos of the search and rescue, there was actually a has created. So a hazard report because it had become such a dangerous environment. Nobody was on the same frequency. Nobody yeah. seemed to know what was going on in this sort of chaos of real-time rescue. The helicopter from HSC 28, just the week prior, the rescue swimmer on that um, Cheech, was his call sign. He was out on a rescue an a Navy H fifty three C Dragon, one of these big heavy lift helicopters that had gone down. They had an in-flight fire. Oh man. Uh caused because, you know, those helicopters are extremely antiquated. And there's actually a whole documentary about what happened with that and, and sort of the the budget neglect that <laughs> much of the military is suffering from and upkeeping the equipment we have vice the urge to send all this money to developing new things and the contractors yeah. and the, the defense industry that benefits from that and the sort of imbalance and what that, what that does to the active duty people and the equipment that we currently have yeah. and the soldiers that are on the ground, you know, fighting Marines, fighting in Fallujah without body armor yeah. with fricking duct tape together m 16s from Vietnam area. Yeah. Anyways, sandbags is armor and just, I digress. Yeah, uh, we can get into that later. I can. Uh, it's it. it's, yeah, it's about a valid a point. point.
0: And didn't uh, we just increase the budget? So. <laughs>
1: yeah. I'm sure. Year over year, every year, baby.
0: Uh, it's okay. Sixty uh, percent of it was unaccounted for. So. Yeah,
1: that's all. <laughs> that's all. Yeah. well, you're you're not <laughs> wrong. But that's that's one of the things that we used to say about the helicopters, right? If it's not leaking, it's. Probably empty.
2: Yeah, right. right? If there's right. not leaking
1: <laughs> hydraulic fluid, it's because it's out.
2: You <laughs> right. want to see that stuff dripping. Yeah.
1: <laughs> like, it's good. No, it's a good thing it's dripping.
2: Yeah. It wow. means it's full. <laughs> but, uh, anyways, so there was this H 53 Sea Dragon that went down right around the same area I was in the week prior. Mm. The majority of the crew, I believe, survived the crash into the ocean quickly that thing flipped upside down and those guys were exposed to that super cold water and very quickly became hypothermic. Cheech was on that rescue. And at the time, the Navy policy was anybody who's involved in a water rescue for an aircraft has to use a backboard, which seems good in theory, because you could prevent further spinal injury if they've got a spinal injury. But the problem was it took so long to put every single individual onto that and get him into the helicopter oh, yeah. that several of the crew, I believe, perished from hypothermia. Damn. So Cheech is coming off basically the worst week in his career, having experienced that. Didn't get any freaking time off, didn't get leave, didn't get to go get counseling. He's back at work doing his job. And he shows up at my rescue with that in the back of his head. Hmm. Meanwhile, HS 11 showed up first their rescue swimmer gets in the water first because of a miscommunication. He thinks I'm on the boat that's out there. The fishing vessel ends up swimming past my position onto the uh, rescue ve- or the fishing vessel. The helicopter pilot from HSC 28 actually spots me first of anybody to actually get eyes on me in the rescue effort other than that fishing vessel. Mm. And they see my, my head bobbing around, you know, I'm just a little dark head bobbing around the ocean and I'm getting drug under repeatedly. Yeah, I'm mostly underwater my beacon also malfunctions, so there's not really any way to gauge my position, unless you can see my little dark head that yeah. occasionally was bobbing to the surface, coughing up and screaming for help. They get my position, fly over, Cheech sees me, jumps in without hesitation, gets down there. He said he clipped into my uh, titanium D-ring on my harness. And in their training, you know, they get drug under in a pool by in a in training for rescue swimming and he said he clipped into me and that parachute dragged both of us and him being a, you know, freaking super strong swimmer. He wasn't even able to pull against the force of that parachute. And he said in the pool, you look down and you see the, you see the bottom of the pool. It's no yeah. big deal. He said, then he saw all this tangle of paracord, the parachute dragging us. And then just this dark abyss of the open Atlantic ocean below us. And it was a very different oh, thing yeah. to overcome, but his training kicked in. He cut me loose from all that tangled paracord, got me hooked in and pulled up into the helicopter, you know, spinning like crazy, blasting with prop wash. Yeah, And he says, screw it with the backboard. This guy has got to be hypothermic. At this point, uh, depending on which report I hear, it's it was somewhere between an hour and a half to two hours I had been submerged to that cold oh, water, God. Um, you know, fighting for my life. They get me into the helicopter. Uh, the crew chief on the helicopter, Joey, uh, as they got this rescue call, he was like eat, trying to eat his lunch. He had this big meatball sub with marinara and everything on it. And because of the chaos of it, he had to like stuff it back into like the remnants of the wrapper and set it. And at this point they had like rolled all over the cab <laughs> or, or the inside of the helicopter. There's so there's just everywhere. marinara and meatball everywhere. They pulled me up into the helicopter. and Now I'm just like covered in meatball and marinara. It looks like a freaking horse show. Yeah, yeah. And I'm in bad shape, but, uh, Anyways, they they get me in there. It's about a 45-minute ride. They get me headed towards Norfolk General. Okay. Again, another crazy twist of fate here is is if HS-11 had picked me up, not realizing the extent of my injuries, they had been instructed to bring me back to the aircraft carrier because it was closer. Oh, man. But had they brought me there, they wouldn't have had the equipment and the staff to deal with the severe trauma that I was. Sure. Um, So again, it was fortunate, actually, that those guys missed me initially. They get me back to Norfolk general. They said it was maybe a 45 minute ish ride. And it seemed like five hours for the crew because the whole way there I'm in and out of consciousness coding, you know, so near death and touching death. They're doing sternum rubs and everything they can to like bring me back and try to keep me with it. And I went from being out to sitting up, just screaming for help. No idea where I was at. Um, They get me to Norfolk general, which is a level one trauma center. As the staff is coming out with the gurney to get me out, they're kind of explaining, hey, he's covered in meatball sub and marinara. He's bad Uh, shape, but it's not that bad. And so they get me in. But you're bleeding Um, too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've got the brachial internal bleed from that. And then I've also got two open leg fractures on my legs. Uh, I'm extremely hypothermic. I've got a ton of water in my lungs. Uh. My kidneys are failing from rhabdomyolysis because of all that. I'm probably saying that wrong. Rhabdomyo- uh Rhabdomyolysis. Yeah. The, the tissue breakdown from all these injuries is just overwhelming my kidneys. And anyways, they get me into the hospital. They start treating me for all these things at once, essentially. By the time I got to the hospital, I'd been in a, a heated cab helicopter for about 45 minutes. When they took my core body temperature, it was at 87 degrees Fahrenheit. Damn. They said, at 86 Fahrenheit, if your body temperature Ugh. gets there, you're dead. Yeah. So I was almost dead from hypothermia, but at the same time, had I not had that hypothermia, I would have bled to death exactly. way before I got there. Mm-hmm. So it ended up saving my life.
1: Like right um, in this magic spot scared. between... Death so and So many miracles. <laughs> like, like, either side. Perfectly aligned. Uh,
2: despite yeah. the chaos of it all. Um, but they get me in. They're pumping water out of my lungs, doing blood transfusions, mm. giving me blood, um, all this stuff, treating me for hypothermia. Once they get me semi-stable, they induce a coma and rush me into surgery. Mm. Over the course of the next week, uh, with the surgical dream team that happened to be on staff, they kept me together, man. Putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. They had to do um, limb salvage procedures in all four extremities with uh, fasciotomies. So they did a big fasciotomy on my right arm, fasciotomies on my left forearm, fasciotomies on my upper arms, fasciotomies on both my lower legs, on both sides. Uh, For those who aren't familiar with the fasciotomy, historically, when you get bad injuries to your extremities, be it from breaks bullets whatever it is it causes that tissue to get really inflamed and Mm -hmm. swell up and i'm sure you guys are familiar with this from your training and experience uh but that pushes against the fascia tissue and it constricts blood flow Mm -hmm. causes compartment syndrome and not that long ago not that many decades ago they would just chop the limb off and you'd be uh you know amputee or quadriplegic in my case fortunately with these fasciotomies that they were able to do because i was fortunate to be at a level one trauma center at that moment they were able to limb salvage all four of my extremities Mm. Uh, once they got the blood flow back and that semi-stable you know they stitched and sutured me up with over one hundred and eighty sutures and staples and then they rebuilt my skeleton with uh, titanium uh, intermedial nails or rods that are these titanium rods essentially that they put in my uh, upper arms on both arms in the humerus and then my tibia in both legs Um, screws a big steel plate on my left forearm because it was just so shattered Uh, my legs were in such bad shape that actual chunks of my tibia had fallen out uh, but now if you see my x-ray i look like uh mini me wolverine essentially <laughs> <laughs> do call uh, sign yeah. wolverine
0: <laughs> and, and thank god you didn't have any experience with that shark
2: yeah mary lee was <laughs> she full. left you alone and i actually later learned despite what i was thinking at the time that sh- most sharks are typically repelled from the scent of our blood hmm. uh we're like one of their last choices of meals hmm. and uh While I'm not saying a a shark that just swam over the open ocean for a long time that's starved, isn't going to pick you off. Yeah. Right. In most cases, they smell your blood and they go, yeah, Mm. no thanks. Uh, It's kind of like chow food, you know, the chow hall. It's like, uh, (laughs) man, dirty uh, blood. I guess I got to eat it. I'll eat it. (laughs) Man, this guy's really banged up. I think
0: we're going to leave him alone. Uh,
2: (laughs) Vulture. Yeah. Mary Lee, Mary Lee left me alone. And Uh uh, so they put me into surgery, induced coma for a week, over a dozen surgeries as they did all of that. Wow. At one point, uh, middle of the night, the nurse came in and my left hand was just blue and cold Mm. and they're like, all right, we're going to have to amputate it. But as a last ditch effort, they called in this vascular surgeon and he was able to do a vein graft to repair my brachial artery in my right arm and restore blood flow. But I came within a couple hours or less of losing this lower arm or hand. Um. Um, And anyways, after a week of all that, uh, they transferred me from Norfolk general over to Portsmouth Naval hospital to the ICU. Um, and I was now at basically they're trying to get me to come to wake yeah. up. And I spent another week in this non-induced coma where they're like, we don't know if he's going to come to. And I look, wow. I mean, I look like hell. I, my face just from impacting the air at that speed, it looked like I had lost in a freaking 15 rounds of boxing. My eyes were swollen up. My face was all puffy and black and blue. Yeah. I had an exfixator. So this big metal contraption on my right arm, holding it in place. Uh, all my extremities were vacuum sealed with this plastic wrap, Uh, wound vax. I was intubated. Hmm. Uh, My legs were all like sprawled out and wrapped and lifted. And you can imagine as a parent coming in and seeing your child, especially parents that weren't terribly keen on me going in the military to begin with. I know it was extremely hard on my mom. Yeah. But, uh, all my squadron mates are there and and wondering how I'm going to be. They're all visiting at the ER or, or the ICU waiting room. And, the the mood's pretty low. Morale's pretty low at this point because there's a lot of pessimism going around from the physicians and medical staff saying mm-hmm. like, you know, he's probably not going to come to, he might be a vegetable. And Basil, the same guy who jinxed me, thanks Basil. <laughs> uh, he comes in and he's like, ah, oh, he's a scrappy motherfucker. He'll be all right. Yeah. And so it kind of lifted the mood. Everyone's like, yeah, scrappy motherfucker. And so they took scrappy motherfucker and made a makeshift acronym out of it. Uh, and turn it into smurf. <laughs> and because it's the Navy these days of political correctness, we have to have a politically correct cover story to yeah. get it passed. So it's because uh, I'm a short guy that turned blue from hypothermia, is yeah. technically why I'm smurf. That's uh, fair. That's uh, but now you know one. the real story. Um, <laughs> Scrap. Wow.
0: I, I would be interesting if you could reach out to Fisty and ask him where the patterns of the shark went around. <laughs> <laughs> Still on the shark? <laughs> Like like you could just see it circling you. That would just like really lock in the story. Oh I mean. yeah.
2: Yeah. He's probably sitting at the SDA desk. He's going, no no, 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 he's getting closer.
1: He
0: he's probably he probably honestly was like, I shouldn't have said anything. I, like, <laughs> yeah. I you know. Man, oh jinx,
2: yeah. We've had a good laugh about it since. Um but do you,
0: do you still, uh, track Mary Lee?
2: <laughs> I have actually, she, I think she's, she stopped showing up on GPS, uh, maybe a year or two back. Mm. I, I think there's only a limited yeah. life of those tracker tags Yeah, and it's a big ocean. So she's yeah. probably out there chilling. If I ever meet her, I'm going to, you know, eating some other thank naval you for pilot. not eating me. <laughs>
1: yeah. uh, well, yeah. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to detract from like the, the progress and, you know, coming out of a coma and everything which spoiler alert he come he came out of a coma yeah Um, how do you know (laughs) (laughs) spoiler alert how did you figure that i want to go back to the rescue just a little bit um so were you coherent for most of the rescue or were you in and out of consciousness i was
2: i remember up to pulling the ejection handle and then from then on out i have no linear memory i have a lot of retrograde amnesia Mm -hmm. and so i've had bits of Bits and pieces come back yeah. uh, largely for a while. They're in the form of night tears where I would relive, you know, what I was experiencing. Out,
0: you got that had to be something that you were reliving at night. It's just that
2: I, I still very vividly remember that feeling in my, the gut of yeah. my stomach realizing that, oh shit, like what's about to happen. I'm about to die. And yeah. this is the only option. It's not a good option. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's not. A good so option. I remember that very <laughs> and that's clearly.
0: One point five seconds of a choice, right? Or that was oh, yeah. before you hit the. This the water. is but yeah. This is just
2: seconds. I mean, from the time I initiated that nose low maneuver, it was maybe less than ten seconds before I was ejected. Be able so. to
0: make that decision under pressure like that of i have two it's choices very intu-
2: here intuitive at that point yeah. it was um, do this or die it was the ocean was rushing up so fast it was just overwhelming like yep this isn't working out yeah and it was the first thing i didn't even. i don't think i even thought of it, it was just grabbed and yank um and- assume the position and get out of here mm, um yeah unfortunately those martin baker ejection seats man they freaking get you out quick and effective yeah and uh incredibly survivable uh somehow yeah um but, uh, so, no, you, you,
1: no real memory of you know, being in the water or like. Well, again, in those later, little clips of night yeah.
2: tears, I get some of what happened wow. there that, that being trapped in the feeling of salt water entering my lungs and being underneath oh, the ocean, not able to reach the surface. And, you know, that was some pretty bad ways to wake up in the middle of the night for a long time. Yeah. It sounds awful. Um, But most of the story I've been able to recreate from all the different perspectives and reports and everything that that we've gotten, everything from the aircraft flight recorder that came out in the ejection seat, the black box Mm -hmm. that showed the exact, you know, parameters of the aircraft to, you know, there was a very big investigation into it to figure out everything that happened in as much detail as possible. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And, but yeah, at this point, two weeks in a coma don't know if i'm going to come to and the first thing i remembered everything was dark and i was able to hear familiar voices and i slowly came to and recognized faces between the head injury and then all the freaking drugs i was on at that Mm -hmm. point between the fentanyl and dilaudid and everything they were pumping me full of uh, i was pretty loopy and out of it and I had no idea how I got there. At that point, I had zero memory of what had happened. It was like waking up from a dream, except you're not in your own bed. Yeah. You're in this blinking, beeping ICU room that looks like a fishbowl with glass walls on all sides. Yeah, You can hear other people moaning and yelling in the rooms next to you. But most, a lot of my squadron mates and friends and family were all there to embrace me and welcome me back. And I didn't get it. It took me months, really, to fully start to grasp what had happened. But initially you know, I'm, I'm waking up and I've got all this vacuum wrapping on all my extremities. I've got all these staples and sutures on my arms. Um, I remember I had this gray wool, scratchy blanket over me. Hmm. And I thought it was either made out of lead or something, or it was tied down because I remember trying to move and I could not budge. Yeah. So I thought, why did they tie me to the table? But it was because I was paralyzed and you know, it was, I was so out of it, probably in a, in part good thing. Cause I didn't fully grasp. I remember as my friends started coming in and talking to me, I was like, Hey, will you guys go grab that wheelchair over there? I, like, I got a bunch of stuff to do at work. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what's going on here. I'm fine. Like, I'm just going to go home and shake this off. And they're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you don't understand, man. You're going to be here for a while. Yeah. Um. You know, I, I know from the head injury, I was just saying like really inappropriate stuff, which is common with that. Like. I was making like really raunchy, dirty jokes with my mom in the room. (laughs) I mean, she laughed it off and all, but it was like, I was not all there for a while. Yeah, Um, Is that
1: something that started to come back gradually or? Very gradually.
2: Yeah. 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 Um, That's
0: disorienting when you wake up in the hospital like that.
2: Oh yeah. Uh, It was, yeah, it was very surreal and, and the drugs had me in and out. You know, passing out, coming to some of the stuff they gave me i like I was having a great time on, <laughs> yeah uh, sure, <laughs> my brain was just very creative, and like listening to music was one of the most amazing things ever on all that <laughs> stuff, like yeah. just you could see the the colors of the music and anyways, they eventually got me from the i c u to an i c step down room, and the medical staff i don 't think they were trying to be malicious or anything, but they kind of came in to give me the realistic prognosis. It was largely, hey, you're. here's what's kind of happened to you. You have all these nerve injuries, this neck injury, head injury. You're likely never going to walk again. You're likely never going to use your arms again. Your flying career is over. Sorry, um, we'll do the best we can. Hmm. And in the back of my mind, I was just like, screw you guys. I'm going to prove you wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of my drive every day was to just try to do a little bit, anything that I could. And at first, all that was, was just to like, try to like scooch something like scooch my butt on the bed or like get a little nerve impulse to work somewhere in my body. And after a couple more weeks in the ICU, I was eventually able to kind of scoot around on the bed you know, it was very uncomfortable One not being able to take care of yourself and shitting all over yourself and having some young 18 year old corpsman that signed up to go be with the special forces, doing cool guy stuff is stuck in there, wiping your butt. Uh, (laughs) and so it was very unpleasant, uh, you know, being what I felt kind of like a burden on people in Mm -hmm. that way Mm -hmm. and being completely unself-sufficient, which I had always kind of prided myself on. Sure. Uh, but that was just more motivation to get out of that situation. And one day the nurse came in and I had managed to get to the bottom of my, my little bed and sat up. She came in and she's like, Whoa, she couldn't believe I was sitting up. And so eventually I was stable enough there that they transferred me into an ambulance and took me down to rich, I guess up if we're going uh, north uh, to Richmond, Virginia, Hmm. uh, a couple hours north of Virginia beach area, Norfolk area. And they put me at the VA polytrauma center there. Okay. at I think it's the McGuire VA hospital there. And uh, that's where I started undergoing basically every type of conventional therapy known to man uh, most every day of the week, all day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to relearn how to do everything. Uh, I did speech therapy therapy. Vision therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, kinesiotherapy, aqua therapy, recreational therapy, seeing all these specialists. And, you know, the the, the facility there was just renovated. So it was very new and clean and nice mm-hmm. art on the walls. Look, if you were to walk through, you'd go, wow, this place is really nice, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, compared to here, there were veterans, you know, Vietnam era veterans that would come in and visit us and bring us pizza and stuff and hang out with us. And this one dude I talked to, he was a, he was a sniper during the Vietnam war that took a few rounds, crawled his way out over several days from behind enemy lines, all alone, got rescued miraculously and told me the conditions of what the VA was like back in those days. Uh, And he's like, you know, you're stuck 12 plus dudes in a little room, no privacy. Everybody's just covered in blood, piss and shit. You're lucky to see medical staff once a day. And then, Mm. oh, by the way, you, you were drafted into this war that you didn't necessarily sign up to do. You got severely wounded, treated like that. And then, once you're really good and addicted to morphine, they wheel you out on the side of the road in a wheelchair and say, good luck with your life. Yeah. So, you know, things have evolved in a lot of ways from there. But at the same time, I saw a lot of. Problems under that facade of this sort of nice facility and big screen TVs in every room. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's a, the care, the staff there was very caring and, and really wanted what's best, but some massive shortcomings I saw was one, the, you know, the pharmaceutical industry has reps there and they're oh, freaking yeah. you know, they're dressed some, they're these pretty young women dressed somewhere between, you know, business casual and escort and they come and flirt with you and they try to get you to sign up for these trials. And I overheard the staff talking about a trial that had recently gone down where they had these spinal patients that had, uh, you know, chronic pain issues from these nerve injuries related to severed spinal cords. Mm -hmm. And they brought in this medication on a trial and they injected this stuff into their spinal fluid And it was supposed to help with pain, but because it had gotten contaminated, which I later heard was likely because they were storing the stuff cryogenically frozen in liquid nitrogen in containers that were not designed to go in liquid nitrogen. The liquid nitrogen was seeping into the containers. So they were essentially injecting remnants of this liquid nitrogen with the medicine into these spinal patients causing Severe like eleven out of ten pain permanently for the rest of these guys' existence, and they're you know they're paralyzed, begging people to kill them because they can 't kill themselves, and the only way they could really live on in their existence is in an induced coma, um, so there was some pretty awful things that I heard about I going
1: mean, that's a nightmare yeah that's that that, a nightmare that's a
2: nightmare scenario um, and uh, and wow. you know there's there's probably lots of other examples of some of the testing that's kind of going on behind the scenes on veterans. That's not sure. talked about And this stuff doesn't see the light of day in the news. Yeah, um, it never would. Uh, one of the other biggest shortcomings I saw was, uh, one, everything is about getting you on as many drugs as possible. Agreed. You don't, you don't ask for it. I didn't say ever like, Hey, I'm hurting. Can I have some more meds? Yeah. But before I knew it, I was on this polypharmal list of, oxycodone oxycontin tramadol trazodone amitriptyline stuff to, gabapentin you, notched,
0: stuff to loosen your stool yeah and it, yeah i remember i was in the hospital i had over 76 pills a day three times oh. a day and it was all to counterbalance other things so yeah. that five of those drugs could do its job
2: Right. And, and then the one they told me like, oh, this, this, this drug gabapentin, this newer medication is better than the oxycodone. It's not supposed to be addictive. And so they had me up on like 2,400 plus milligrams a day of that stuff, mm. which uh, there's a really good book out there called sickening by Dr. John Abramson. Okay. He does an interview actually he's on the Rogan podcast, uh, maybe this past year. Mm. Uh, but that book goes into the sort of the corruption in the whole clinical trials in the pharmaceutical industry influence over getting a lot of these drugs passed. Yeah. And Seroquel, uh, which is the, the brand name, yeah. uh, for, uh, it's, uh, or not, I'm sorry, not Seroquel. I'll get into that later. Actually, that's mm. a whole nother chapter of this, but, uh, um, Neratin or gabapentin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was the nerve pain medication that they were giving me in massive doses. That one actually got into a lot of trouble the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, I can't remember which manufacturer made that one, but they actually got in a massive fine which for them was like nothing cuz yeah. they make so much that these are just slaps on the wrist. Slaps um, on the wrist. Yeah, so a, that's exactly. But uh, the they days that they brought. were yeah. illegally marketing that for off-label use and that was what they were giving it to me was this off-label use of it. Mm. Um, Anyway, so the, the over-medication and then every night where you're trying to get sleep, they're constantly waking you up. So you're you're not getting good sleep. You, they're waking you up to take your vitals and give you more medication to help you sleep, which is like, just let me sleep. I was sleeping already. <laughs> and then I think one of the biggest downfalls was the freaking food was mm. absolute just over-processed garbage went to the you know the contract went to the lowest bidder which happened to be this facility like an hour and a half away in hampton roads prepared this already highly processed a few steps below a tv dinner maybe a notch above mre uh prison food just yeah yeah, probably equivalent to what prison food is Uh, and they put it in metal boxes and they transport it an hour and a half so by the time you're getting it it's just there's no nutrients there's little to no fresh fruit or vegetable. Uh there's just junk. Yeah. Uh for example, I call it the Holiday Feast. Uh it was this sliced deli meat turkey it was supposed to be it was supposed to be like a Thanksgiving dinner, you know. Uh it was it looked like like the sliced discount slimy deli meat that's yeah. about to go oh, rancid yeah. oh. was the main entree and then they had these boxed mashed potatoes that weren't mixed properly and so they were all like powdery powdery and (laughs) chunks of stuff in them they had on top was this little gelatinous brown goop with chunks in it that was the gravy that looked like it came out of a can of dog food and put right on top
1: coagulated and
2: And then there on the side was this white generic jelly packet that just said cranberry on it (laughs) and it was like high fructose corn syrup artificial color artificial flavor cranberry flavor cranberry sauce uh, so that's like the new Nutrition that they're which it's not you can't even yeah. call that nutrition and you get two percocets for dessert um, yeah <laughs> and then and then fortunately you know if you're on like the the low sodium diet then you don't even get salt or hot sauce so oh, it makes man. it even worse so you're not getting sleep you're not hardly getting exercise you're not getting basic nutrition mm. they're putting all the money into the therapists and this sort of big facade of all these things they're doing to you. And granted there, there is some benefit to the therapy you get and that's, I'm grateful for. Yeah. Um, But you know, underneath that facade, there's also all these sort of shortcomings that Mm. are serious issues that should be addressed. Um, But I spent three months as an inpatient Um, a long time. They kept telling me, you know, you're not going to walk. Fortunately, eventually they had one of these electric wheelchairs free up for me. And I know you're into this world, uh, but getting that independence to be able to get on this thing. And I only had two fingers in my left hand that would work, but it was enough to operate the little joystick. Okay. And so it gave me mobility and it was so liberating after months of just basically being stuck in a bed just to be able to get moved into this thing and like scoot Mm -hmm. around and like go outside a little bit and and get fresh air was huge motivation Uh, but I, I every day I took the the therapy very seriously. I charged at it really hard, and I did what little I could. And little by little, things started to come back on. Mm. Um, eventually, I got good enough that they took me out for one of my first meals outside the facility, um, and after all of that oxycodone and pain meds, I hadn't taken a shit in like two weeks. Oh yeah. yeah. oh sure. They got me to the, I think we went to like a noodle house or something. Oh, no. and, rolled in. <laughs> and as I got Roll me to the bathroom aroma of just like that smell of like real food, yeah. I was like, Oh, and my stomach was just like, <laughs> was like somebody at this point I had to have help getting around still. Yeah. Uh, they wheeled me into the bathroom and got me on the toilet and I proceeded to after a lot of screaming and blood and gore and awfulness, like awful pain, I pushed this freaking Nerf football <laughs> out. <laughs> And as I came out, like they had turned the music up in the restaurant, <laughs> to be like, trying to drown out my screams of terror and pain. Uh, and as I came out, like no one would make eye contact with me, but it was like this chunk of evil escaped my body. Uh, uh, yeah. and, you know, some of my parts haven't been the same ever since that experience, yeah, but right. <laughs> anyway, it's great to get out. Sounds like um, a yawn now. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, for a long time, they told me my right hand would never work again And one day. And I, so I had started to relearn how to do everything with, my non-dominant left hand with okay. just my pinky and ring finger, I had to relearn how to, you know, brush my teeth and do mm. all my little things and eat. And eventually that bicep started to come back a little bit. Um, but it was, it was pretty minimal for mm. what I could do, but they got me into aqua therapy. They got me, uh, eventually strapped into this contraption so I could relearn to walk little by little that eventually progressed to where I could get in a walker. Okay, um, my right arm one day just started, like I was starting to able to, feel tingle in my fingers and then after a few days and then a week I was able to, you know, start using my right hand again wow. and little by little stuff just slowly came online. Fortunately I had people bringing me food from the outside. So I was actually getting real food, yeah, uh, which I think made a huge difference. I saw a lot of people in there that were motivated in doing these therapies, but they were not getting that. Mm. And man, when your body doesn't get freaking food, yeah. real yeah. food, like I don't care if you have all the freaking therapy in the world, like that is a massive shortcoming of that.
0: Mine was Panda um, Express. Yeah. <laughs> I loved orange chicken. And I, <laughs> when I was in the hospital, any anyone Hey man,
2: can I bring you anything? Orange chicken, Panda. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the smell of that after all that crap for you like, yeah. oh yeah. Delicious. I still to this
0: day love Panda Express. I, <laughs> I
2: swear by it. <laughs> <laughs> this this episode of Bed-A-Vac podcast brought to you by Panic Express, by <laughs> <Yeah. An> Express. <laughs> Orange Chicken specifically. <laughs> yeah. um, but little by little, they got me walking on a walker, and after three months, I eventually got to go home to Virginia Beach uh, and started doing outpatient therapy. So how many months until you were on the walker? Like, um, it that? took about oh, three months in so total, zero to three adjunction. months. Then yeah. then
1: you could get up and like use the walker.
2: Yep, and that was you know i wasn't getting around real good but yeah. i could at least scooch around on my own with well, how, some mobility so how long
1: were you more or less permanently paralyzed like were were you um, incapacitated and could not move on your own do you know about
2: a it month and a half i'd say before i started to get little bits where i could start wiggling legs and moving these two fingers on my yeah. left hand how, um, from a mental
1: health aspect i mean you were you were obviously at the the peak of your physical you know physical body you were operating as you know an elite fighter pilot in the navy so like you're able to use your mind and your body in peak capacities and you've gotten to zero now on both aspects
2: yeah i mean fortunately i guess in part i had that head injury and all these drugs so i was just kind of out of it yeah and, and in my mind, all I was focused on was what can I do right now? Mm-hmm. What can okay. I move? And it's just that. What can I maybe get a little bit better today? Yeah, it's, it's just a good that step
0: set. at a time. Yeah. You know, one foot in front of the, the other. Um, I'm sure you get asked the question quite often now is like, how did you get through it? Yeah. You know? <laughs>
2: Yeah. I mean, there was a lot, not, not only the physical injuries, um, you know, but then also I just crashed an $89 million fighter jet. (laughs) My career is potentially over. I don't know what's all happened with that. How much am I at fault for what has happened? Mm. And they started doing a FENAB, which is a field Naval aviator evaluation board, which is not really a process anybody wants to ever have to do. But uh, even while I was still in the hospital and, and, you know, it was actually way too early cause I was so, I had such a bad head injury and all the drugs. They started asking me questions while I was like, which is not, not yeah. all there. It's yeah. not fair. But I think I saw that fortunately there were some good dudes that were running the Phenab. it's run by other aviators, other yeah. strike fighter community members. So they're like, okay, listen, here's the situation. We realize this is supposed to be done by this policy in this time. And they're kind of, stiff-armed it mm. um and but once i got back to virginia beach and i could get around on a walker it was like all right investigation time game on and so there was a lot of difficulty knowing that everything i was going to have to overcome to mm. you know and what could potentially become of this this could be really bad yeah um but every day i just kind of stayed focused on what can i do now and I enacted this sort of discipline every day of going to the therapy, pushing myself as hard as I could, and I just stayed focused on very near sighted goals, yeah, and I just tried to not pay too much attention to like long term outcome and all the pessimism and statistics because you know my whole life I had been kind of an underdog an undersized Redheaded kid, you know, like, oh, like, I know. i <laughs> uh, coming from there. The, you go. Uh, like, coming from behind has kind of become something that I had embraced and was kind of loved to do, and almost mm-hmm. just to prove people wrong what I was capable of. So, um, I think that foundation in my core kind of kept that fire alive in me yeah. and kept driving me. But really, it was just that discipline to keep me going every day. And what mm-hmm. could I do? And I would do it with everything I could and i poured myself into it mm-hmm. and that that made progress and it was like these little you know from just being able to sit up on my own yeah. to being able to go to the, the bathroom by myself like that, those little victories that's the motivation right there for sure and i'm sure you know like i've had you, my fair <laughs> share <The> same same <laughs> like,
0: kind of situations very uh, very uh familiar you know Uh, waking up in the hospital and just being so confused, you know, you were doing something important and, and then just those small baby steps to overcome. Mm. And then, you know, when you get that question, it's how'd you, how did you get through it? It's just, you just survive. It's, it's that foot in front of another, the other, and just trying to make it through the day, the hour, the minute, if you need to.
2: Yeah, man. Short, short <laughs> <And that laughs> term, short term goals, little
0: short term goals, just step that. by it's step, like goals right in front <laughs> of your face. Yeah. And that's how that's how you have to look at it. And then eventually you could look back and be like, OK, three months have passed. But and that's how everybody perceives it as is that time that you yeah. took to get to where you're at now. They don't understand the baby steps. Yeah, that it truly takes taking that successful shit for the first time, you know. That's a goal.
2: Yeah. And <laughs> like, I mean, and, and it was a concern of the medical staff. I mean, they had me go in and see a psychologist, yeah. and he was kind of like, <laughs> you know, how's it going, man? Like, yeah. this is kind of bad, you know? And, and, but he was pretty astounded by just my mentality of mm-hmm. resilience, where I was just like, what can I do today? You know? Yeah. yeah. And he's like, that's, that's awesome, man. Just keep that. And, um, I kept that going and I fortunately had a lot of support along the way. Once I got out, um, I was in sort of a toxic relationship with the woman I was dating at that time. Fortunately again, my buddy fisty, uh, he had a 1994 Jeep Wrangler painted up just like the Jeep Wrangler from Jurassic park, <laughs> all like the letters and <laughs> yes. graphics and everything. <laughs> he showed up where I was staying with this girl who was, uh, I mean, I, I won't even get into that on air, but uh, I'm happy to share with you off off the mic. But uh, he drives into the driveway, comes in and is like, get a backpack. And he helped me like get my stuff together. And he's like, get we're getting out of here. And like mm. pulled me out of that situation to help me and pulled me into his house. So I started living Good. with my buddy, Fisty, uh, and another friend of mine from flight school, Vinny, who was a pilot um, mm. at VFA 103, another one in the same air wing And those guys, man, just having my friends around me and living with those dudes, like I could still barely get around on a walker and they're like, Hey man, we're going to go out on the boat and go wake surfing. Come on, you're going. And I was like, I could barely get down to the dock and down the hill. And and getting on the boat was the project. But they just kept pulling me out. They started pulling me out to go to Chick's Oyster Bar and go out and have Mm. see everybody and be social. And I was really surprised to see how embraced I was getting by the strike fighter community. And you know, I was thinking, you know, here I'm this guy maybe I screwed up. Maybe I just crashed this jet and it's all my fault. Mm. These guys are going to hate me and be judging me, but it was such the opposite. It was mm. all like
0: that's the mad critical. respect
2: for you being yeah. here at chick's oyster bar, hanging out with us and getting back at it. And yeah. that those little sparks of hope and my friendships are what brought me back. Mm. And I mean, I could, there was, I mean, there were days like I was sitting alone at the house. I knew my buddies were getting ready to deploy into what, became one of the most active uh the most employments of kinematics in the history of naval aviation uh in modern times like they were they were getting ready to go do some very cool stuff and i felt i was letting my squadron down and i had a lot of this depression and there were days i was just sitting out on the back porch on a freaking lawn chair with oxycodone and whiskey and just melting into the floor and i could have very easily disappeared disappeared into that dark place, but fricking fisty and Vinny would show back up and take me back out and get me, you know, they eventually got me wake surfing. Mm -hmm. Um, my buddy, uh, Spicoli, he got me out, uh, fricking mountain biking. I had done some like trail riding before, but he took me out, like, no kidding, downhill mountain biking at Bryce Downhill Park in Virginia. Like, I had the freaking full face mask, all the armor. I could barely use my arms at this point (laughs) still. Like, I could barely use the front brake because my left hand was still so weak. Sure. I was wobbly legged, but we're freaking bombing down this stuff. And uh, my buddy Neil and Vinny and Rich took me down to the Outer Banks out surfing. It was like 10 to 12 foot heavy Outer Bank surf. Oh my God. And They're like, come on, dude, I could barely get my fricking wetsuit on. And I didn't even bother with the board, but I put on some flippers and I got out there with them and I got just smashed by a few of these waves (laughs) and held under. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I'm going to freak out being held under, but it was quite the opposite. Like I came to eventually and got a breath of air and I was like alive again. Mm. And those little things were huge motivations. Yeah. Facing that fear Um, again.
0: That is the critical point. I think of being able to handle your injury is having the friends and the support systems around you in place that bring you back to it. Mm. It's the guys who lock themselves in the room for 10 years. If you cut off... And you and, need the connection, you know, so it's so easy for you to have done that. Where you're going to, you know, chick clams or whatever,
2: <laughs> chick's oyster bar. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody from Virginia Beach will know there's a bunch of Navy SEALs and fighter pilots all fighting over three women. <laughs> yeah.
0: I'm, I'm going to get some flack from that one, chick clams. Yeah, chick clams. <laughs> I mean, that would be a good day for it. No, but um, but yeah, having that support system around you is pivotal into your success. Oh yeah, yeah. And, I mean, and two, doing all of these extreme activities gives you back that endurance, right? I mean, if your goal is to just get up and walk again, that's all you're gonna get to. But if your goal is to run that marathon yeah, or to downhill mountain bike, then you're gonna get to there again.
2: And that stuff's so much better and reinvigorating not only your physicality, but like your freaking soul. And mentally yes. helpful, you know, sitting in a occupational therapy clinic trying to pick up marbles mm-hmm. and put them in another container just drains your soul. Mm. I mean, there's no doubt the modern medical system while like the trauma side of the house, all the surgeries I had, I'm so grateful that I got that Western medicine, but it's after the surgeries, after you get put back together, the, the rebuilding of you Mm. in your brain, in your soul Mm -hmm. is, I mean, the rebuilding of your soul isn't even regarded as a thing, unfortunately. And there's, there's a trauma there that doesn't get addressed through conventional medicine, but friends, doing that stuff yeah uh, i mean i Physical started body uh,
0: and <clears throat> your mind right
2: i, I started I, I played the piano a little as a kid i had like a few lessons but i started tooling around on the piano again mm. and you know before i knew it, i was starting to play all these songs again on the piano and that was how i was rebuilding my nerves and my hands is doing something fun that yeah. i enjoyed fine motor um, skills right and uh i ended up i had to go get another surgery uh the titanium rod in my left tibia was a little bit too long and had settled funny so that it was sticking into the bottom of my knee. So whenever I would lock my left leg out, it would just stab mm. into the bottom of my knee. It was really painful. And it started to get where I, I was having trouble walking. So, you know, it was a little bit of progress and then 10 steps back, you know, through this, but, uh, they took me over to Naval Hospital Portsmouth and, had a bunch of consults, did a bunch of imagery, and eventually the doc's like, oh, yeah, you got to have that thing replaced. And while the surgery piece went well, afterwards, Naval Hospital Portsmouth is like a training hospital. And there was some sort of miscommunication after the surgery. I was still not out of, I was still under anesthesia. They had taken me down in my hospital gown. I still had like my ass asses hanging out the back of the wheelchair and they wheeled me out to the front door for like somebody to pick me up. So as I woke up from the surgery, there's nobody around. I'm all groggy. I'm half naked in a wheelchair by the door and being like, what is going on here? It's just like, like left you outside. They didn't put me outside. They put me right by the door though. Like the big slider doors that went out to the, the pull-up the parking lot. And so eventually a nurse came up and is like, is somebody picking you up? And I was like, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know where <laughs> I, I am. <laughs> I, I'm just, and I'm still like super groggy. Yeah. She's like, oh my God. Like she ends up getting me back to a room and then puts me under the care of two brand new medical staff. One, this brand new corpsman who's like, got to be fresh out of his training. Yeah. Doesn't really know what's going on. And then a brand new instant nurse who also, he doesn't, he's like brand new but like, I guess that's who they could call in last minute to take care of this guy they found in a freaking wheelchair. So they put me in this, uh, this ICU room and these guys start taking care of me with no, no adult supervision essentially. And I'm all for like, you know, getting guys trained up by experience, but there needs to be some freaking oversight. Yeah. Especially, especially when hospital. it's a live human being. Yeah. Um, they put in the IV, but it's sub So it just started filling up oh the God. skin with like yeah. a water balloon. <laughs> uh, so I wasn't getting any fluids. I wasn't getting into the medication I was supposed to not to mention at this point, I was addicted To over a dozen different medications. And I started to go through the withdrawals of hours of not getting that medication, not to mention the pain of just coming out of a fresh surgery, Yeah. not to mention just the normal discomfort of coming out of general anesthesia, the nausea, combined with now severe dehydration. He eventually brought in a little plastic urinal for me to pee in. And with all my might, I squeezed out this little bit of brown liquid That was my urine, like the seek medical attention Brown, you know, from like the urine charts you sometimes see in the military. Um, so I was now having probably some form of rhabdomyosis again with already damaged kidneys, uh, severely dehydrated drug withdrawal and the corpsman and this nurse just, it, they had no idea, not of any fault of their own. Like they just didn't belong there alone yeah. without help. And I kept saying, Hey, you sub this, look at it swollen up. And they're just like, no, it's fine. And they're like, okay, listen, if you're going to leave, we need you to be able to demonstrate mobility. So they brought in a walker and they had me they're like all right we need you to walk down this hallway you just got out of surgery i just got out of surgery like maybe five or six hours from this point but i'm like Uh. at this point i'm severely dehydrated i'm getting like i'm starting to get the severe pain in these waves and i'm nauseous and i'm like i will do freaking anything to get out of this place so like yeah you need to walk down to that room and show us that you can move that far i don't know it's maybe 100 feet some feet down the hallway. So I get up and as I put the weight on that left leg, I just hear this crunching as the bone settles and that, that rod settles in there. And, just, and I just feel awful shooting pain from my leg. And I'm just in like almost vomiting and pain. And I just struggle my way down the hallway on this with, every little bit of strength that I had left just shaking, miserable moaning. And I get to the end of the hallway and I don't know if it was like a physical therapy clinic or some sort of uh outpatient clinic. I stumbled into the room and there's two medical staff in there. And I like sit down on the the little table in there. I can't, remember, it was like a, a bench or a table. And then I took a garbage can and just start dry heaving in it. And these two guys are like, what <sighs> in the hell is going on here? Yeah, And, um, I think that at least initiated some real medical help eventually getting there. They got me back to my room. My friend, uh smuggler from my squadron, he was one of my department has another pilot, him and his wife come in. Uh, Amanda, his wife was actually a physical therapist mm-hmm. and she had actually started to work with me outside the clinic, uh, which I can talk about later. But, uh, they come in to like, be like, Hey, what's going on, man. And they saw the condition I was in and that the fact that there was no real medical staff. Uh, and then I just progressed into like the worst pain I've ever been in my life. Just screaming 10 out of 10 pain uh, out of control from the withdrawals and no, nausea. Yeah. And I didn't know what was worse. Like it was just, I felt like I was dying because I really was eventually they, they actually got the IV in. So I was at least getting fluids. Yeah. Uh, but, my body was just collapsing on mm-hmm. me, and it was so miserable um, but uh eventually, at like three a m they finally got this resident doctor in who again, he barely knew what he was doing yeah there was There was literally a pharmacy like a floor above or below where I was at that could have got me all of these meds that I needed, but they just had no idea how to use the system to do that. And so eventually this doc gets in, they're struggling to get me under control because I'm at this point just screaming at the top of my lungs, yelling and moaning. Mm. And they finally bring in a thing of Dilaudid and get up this PCM, patient-controlled medicine, hooked up. And they gave me a little plunger to hit and give this medicine. And it was like trying to put out a freaking wildfire or pain with a bucket, you know? Yeah. It was, you know? It was better than nothing, but just I was so minutes, out of control. Just, <laughs> yeah, I, I would listen for the little thing to click and it was like... And yeah. get that little yeah. <laughs> little tiny bit of relief. Uh and I drained that thing pretty quickly and eventually like slowly came over it. And by the next day, midday, I was finally like where I could speak again. But yeah. it was it was hours and hours of just awful misery that yeah. could have been completely Avoided. Were you demanding um, to see
1: an attending physician at that point? I <laughs> mean,
2: get your they, ass in here. They eventually had like the grown ups come in, yeah, and, and there was like no apology. Is just oh, of course not.
0: They can't but, apologize. Our bad. That puts them open
1: for a lawsuit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, our uh,
2: bad. But I eventually got out. I started working with uh, Amanda, affectionately known as Aunt Smugs. I showed up day one on therapy. At this point, I'm on a cane. And she like snatches the cane on my hands and chucks it. She's like, I don't want to see you walking on that anymore. She had a Nalgene bottle and on the side it said patient's tears. And she was just ready to kick my ass. And I loved it. Like she – Yeah. You know the clinical setting they're kind of like take it easy on you, and she was like doing full up like wads like deck of uh, card wads like <laughs> push up sprints and and I was i mean it was frustrating to go from where I was at in like lifting and all that and capable to like just barely being able to absolutely move was so so debilitating, but I just kept at it. And little by little, I started to see progress Mm. and it took uh, another year. I ended up going back to Portsmouth for another surgery because I had a severed median nerve. They did this uh, tendon transfer procedure. Mm. Uh, And as terrible as my first experience at Naval Hospital Portsmouth was, the second one was like it was like day and night difference. So there were awesome docs and staff there as well uh, it's just kind of luck of the draw, I guess. Yeah. But uh, this doctor, Dr. Christopher Hogan found these old surgeries from like world war II, from all these sketchy experience experiments um, that they were doing back in world war two, where they were able to split tendons and run them to areas of nerve damage and give you function. But uh, you know, at least some good came out of all that awfulness, that, got this medical research but they're able to use it for good at least Mm -hmm. in my case this now in modern times um but they basically split some tendons uh, to, to to regain function so I can make a fist because before I could only use these two fingers my yeah. ring and pinky finger and the other three fingers were just kind of stuck out okay these are still fairly numb and and there's quite a bit of atrophy yeah uh, but oh, yeah. It, at least it gave me enough function to where again I was on the piano trying to play and I was starting to be able to play more complex songs hmm. I did another year where I was just getting after it and frustrated with how weak I was, but building and building. And after a couple years, uh, I, you know, I had to go through a phenab, uh, this very big investigation that looks at everything in your life. It tears your life apart. Um, and you know, I came into, after the initial investigation, after months of this stuff, uh, I ended up, you know, get in my whites, my summer white uniform. And I went in to see an admiral. So I had to drive to Norfolk and I walk in, I think at this point I was still on a cane. Maybe I, I can't remember if I had a cane or not, but I was still pretty rough shape when I went in to see the admiral for my fee nab determination. So they were going to tell me, "Are am I going to be able to fly or not? Yeah. And I went in and, and there's a whole staff in there that sat me down in a boardroom before the Admiral even comes in. It's, it's all aviators. The phenabs mm. are fortunately all run by aviators. There's other strike fighter pilots, helicopter pilots, but everybody there understood flying. And so they started asking me questions and, you know, I large was like, yeah, you know, I made, I made the split second decision and it wasn't the right decision. I was distracted, but it, it's my fault. And what happened largely and you know maybe there's this system on the jet that exacerbated it and there was you know other things leading up to it that could have been av- avoided you know the swiss cheese model you yeah. know a lot of things lined up that kind of went wrong but i largely took it upon myself which i think they were not used to somebody doing in that position hmm. i think they're maybe more used to people trying to like wiggle their way out yeah. of how it's not their fault but they were very open and receptive to me. Um, you know, they, admit, they had interviewed everybody in my squadron. Um, and I had a good reputation. Uh, I had a lot of people speaking up for me as an a above average pilot for my, my experience level. I was well liked, I was doing my job. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like I was a shitbag bag pilot that had all these other issues. Cause had that been the case, you know, the outcome could have been very different. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they all had me go out of the room, talked for a while, invited me back in, sat me at the end of this big wooden table, flanked on both sides by all these aviators, probably a dozen other guys in there. Mm. And then the Admiral comes in. We all stand at attention. He's like, sit down, sit down. And he looks across the table at me. And the only thing he asked was, Lieutenant Gill, are you fearless? And I just took a minute to think what I was going to say. And I said, sir, I... I don't remember some things from the ejection, but I'm certain what little bit of padding there is on an ejection seat was puckered up into me real good. And he didn't laugh. He just got up and walked out of the room and so I was like, oh shit, that might have not have been the right thing to say. But, uh, eventually, you know, they met, talked, whatever they did behind closed doors and one of the. You know, the O six is one of these more senior ranking guys invites me into his office and he hands me a a lifesaver out of this big container of lifesavers on his desk. Mm It's a little mint. And I put it in my mouth. He puts one in his mouth. He's like, congratulations. You're going to go back and fly. If you can learn how to walk again, basically. (laughs) Uh, So uh, they ended up ruling in my favor, giving me uh, the chance to go back, but it was still a big, if at this point I still had to yeah. Freaking get my body back. lots to overcome and still. A lot of medical waivers. I still had this, you know, mental dysfunction, all the drug addiction, but it gave me more motivation to continue. Yeah. And it was again these little steps and little little victories. And over the course of the next year, I went through prescription drug withdrawal against the advice of all the medical staff. I mean, I think they would have still had me on all that crap if it was up to their training. Sure. Um, And that was pretty miserable. And actually, the the Oxycodone and Oxycontin were the easiest ones to get off of. The Gabapentin or Neurotin was actually much more difficult for me. And that's the one that when I started taking it, they're like, Oh yeah, that'll be that'll be way easier Yeah, it doesn't that, do that. This is an It's an not habit one. for me.
0: Yeah, they give that instead of other ones and you're like <sighs>
2: um I was fortunate to get what was called prolotherapy, which uh this dude uh with long hair kind of looked like a hippie doctor came in. <laughs> Super cool, like very different demeanor than most of the doctors that are like, you know, very airy and (laughs) disconnected from you. Uh, Not all, but a lot of them. And this guy comes in. He's like, hey, what's up, man? I got this thing. You want to try it? It's called prolotherapy. I'm just going to inject these little pockets of sugar water underneath the area of your skin where you're having this bad nerve pain. Because I was having these fits of pain that felt like freaking one minute my leg and foot were on fire Mm. or crushing my toes in a wrench or electrical or like all at the same time. And it was bad. It was keeping me up at night. It was making my days pretty miserable. But all he did is he took freaking glucose, sugar water, and a little syringe, and he put these little pockets of sugar water underneath the skin in the areas I was having this nerve pain. And within 10 minutes, with maybe $2 of supplies, 90% of that nerve pain was gone and never came back. Wow. Really? So anybody who's having serious nerve pain, ask about prolotherapy. Interesting. Interesting. and but, this was
1: uh, uh, even though the, gab- the
2: gabapentin is supposed to dull nerve response, right? That's the idea. They <laughs> so, say that. I feel like a lot of those just made me a little loopy and disconnected, yeah. so I didn't. In maybe, some cases,
0: it makes the nerve pain ten times. More yeah, it worse. exacerbates it in certain
1: aspects, yeah, it right? Just, yeah.
2: And it causes so many other complex mm-hmm. issues, and it causes more problems. Yeah. Uh, that. I don't think there's a lot of benefit unless you're in I mean I was happy when I was coming fresh out of the hospital that they were giving me things mm-hmm. like fentanyl and dilatid and oh, oxy. I'm I mean, sure. there's a moment <laughs> yeah, but okay. the chronic usage of those things I mean it's is so damaging to your entire body. Yeah. Um but uh, eventually I weaned myself off of that. Wow. Before long I was freaking out PT in with a freaking weighted vest. I was doing some CrossFit again. I wasn't nearly where I was before, Mm. but going to command PT uh, where I was stationed at that point at the wing in Virginia beach. Uh, I was doing a lot of like ground job stuff on the side, which I was doing good at. Um and people started to notice me in PT because I was freaking literally starting to run circles around everybody. <laughs> and um, eventually the Commodore of the, the strike fighter wing came and he's like, Man, I can't believe you're doing this. Uh I was starting to I was able to max out the Navy's physical fitness standards again. And uh before I knew it, he's they invited me to go back and join up in a new class and and do some retraining in F-18. Oh nice. So I joined up. Um And I was back flying super Hornets again. Uh, How long was Um, this from, from the accident? It was almost exactly two years from the date of the accident that I classed up to go to fly again. Wow. And so they had me going
0: to not be able to walk again to back as a super Hornet pilot.
2: Yeah. That's huge progress. Incredible. And so, you know, I still had to pass that training and I was kind of under a microscope my microscope considering i was just coming off of a phenab yeah. and everything that had happened but uh you know for a while i felt kind of bad about the jet but the guys in my squadron were like they did the math and they figured out uh for an 89 million dollar jet in 2014 dollars that's the equivalent of every american taxpayer paying 24 cents so <laughs> If you ever see me and you're upset about the jet, I owe you a gumball. Yeah. A quarter. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but that puts with, the
1: military With inflation though, gumballs
2: are $4 now. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. That All right. yeah we That's an incredible
0: up. story, man. Um,
2: yeah, truly. Nice, man. And uh, yeah, I, I ended up graduating at the top of my class, going through retraining and that ended shit. up uh, with VFA 136 Nighthawks in Lemoore, California, flying Super Hornets. And I was back at it. Um doing workups, getting ready to deploy. And uh this is kind of where the Disney version of my story would probably end. Yeah. And the next chapters get even crazier than what I've just told you about. It's like a dark turn. Um, yeah. Ooh. And things get really wild. So um, this might be a good stopping point for today, but if you guys are willing to do some more talking at some oh, yeah. point, um there is a whole nother world that uh that we get into that is even more, I think uh just give me some hot words. What are we what are we looking at? So um yeah, the the residual effects of having a brain injury, mm. um, the world of psych medications, mm. uh broken psycho uh psych treatments um the world of psychoses, mental hospitals and eventually psychedelics mm. and some alternative treatments not available through the VA and uh, man things get really weird but it freaking gets really beautiful uh, mm. and ends with me here speaking with you guys but that 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 chapter or chapters uh, I think people really enjoy
0: yeah Incredible man. Well, we're gonna definitely <laughs> wow. have you back because we want awesome. you. I look forward. Sharon, Sharon, your complete journey. It's it's an incredible one, and I think it's absolutely inspiring.
1: Truly yeah. inspiring. I mean, Thank from you, from man. start to finish. Like we've we've obviously heard your story up until now, but I mean, everything that you've gone through, and to still be out, come out on the other side, the way that you are with your resilience. I mean, tackling large physical feats. Uh, I mean, I mean you're you haven't really let it stop you in the least.
2: Thank no. you guys. And, and I know you guys have both um, experienced a lot in your careers and, and in that world. And um, yeah, it means a lot coming from guys like you that have seen your own serious challenges and struggles in the whole world that you've been through. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and uh, giving me an opportunity to really get into the nitty gritties on this stuff. Yeah, we appreciate you
0: sharing. It yeah. is not an easy thing to do, especially at first. It becomes a little bit more easy and streamlined. One of the things I love to tell people is that uh, the adversities that you face in your life really set you up for success if you could change that perspective. Mm. you know? Oh, yeah.
2: And the more of them you go through, you know, as tough as they may be, the tougher you can come out on the other side of it.
0: The more alive you feel. Oh, Yeah.
2: You know, And the more freaking love and gratitude you have in your heart. And uh, yes. there's a saying I love. It's, uh, you know, that if you want your tree to reach the heavens, you got to have roots deep into hell. Mm. And uh, I feel like the deeper you've been into those dark places, you know, the greater you can grow as that's, a person.
0: That's incredible. So if you could tell the audience one thing, what would it be?
2: I hope that this, uh, I mean, the one word would be hope. I hope no matter what you're going through. And I know there's, there's people going through tough times right now for Mm. a number of reasons, whether you're a military first responder, soccer mom, like it's, there's some tough stuff going on in the world and there's a lot of people that are losing that hope. They're losing that, you know, that little bit of spark of optimism that maybe allows them to be decent to each other or love themselves. So, you know, I hope hearing my story and story of guys like yourself, like I hope this maybe gives you that little bit of hope. Hmm. Cause if you can keep that little bit of hope, uh, that, that same, uh, in episode one, I talk about Mike stock, this legendary Navy test pilot, sea wolf, Bush pilot, legend of aviation. That was, I was fortunate to have as a professor, but he told us in our, one of our classes, the, the basis of survival is having hope. Hmm. You know, he asked us in class, what do you need? What's the most important thing to survive? And we're like, water, food, shelter, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, hope. Hmm. If you can have just that little will to live, that little bit of hope, hmm. if you can, whatever that is, I, I hope, I hope this can give you that, maybe a little spark of it incredible maybe help you can help share that with other people and i love that you guys are doing with this podcast and sharing these stories and, and giving that hope to people that's so desperately needed right now um, yeah but uh yeah
0: well you're awesome i'm great i'm she glad that mary lee didn't get you <laughs> <laughs> yeah she's
2: she's cool i guess man and she's cool. i
0: hope we find her again <laughs> yeah I really yeah do. check if it we out. learned anything Shark from Trapper. this story yeah, right. it's uh <laughs> dinosaurs still exist <laughs> watch out for sharks yeah
1: <laughs> thanks for being on
0: today thank yeah. you guys really for your time you. we're gonna have My you back on uh to hear more about your story
1: episode three coming up next looking forward to it all right thanks kegan this has been the Metavac podcast ladies and gentlemen thank you very much for watching and if you want to follow along a little bit more closely head over to our instagram that's the primary means of contact at Metavac podcast or com.